Welcome to the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series with Dr. Dave Chatterjee. Dr. Chatterjee is the author of Cybersecurity Readiness, a holistic and high-performance approach by Sage Publishing. He has been studying cybersecurity for over a decade, authored and edited scholarly papers, delivered talks, conducted webinars, consulted with companies, and served on a cybersecurity SWAT team with Chief Information Security Officers. Dr. Chatterjee is an Associate Professor of Management Information Systems at the Terry College of Business, the University of Georgia, and Visiting Professor at Duke University's Pratt School of Engineering. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast. Today, I have the honor of having Dr. Timothy Chester, Vice President of Information Technology and Chief Information Officer at the University of Georgia as our guest. A seasoned C-level executive, Dr. Chester has over two decades experiences in state-supported and private higher education institutions. He has led large-scale business transformation efforts through on-time, on-budget ERP implementations, driving increased revenue and improved student outcome through improved use of data and analytics. He's an expert practitioner in developing improved information security programs for large geographically distributed enterprises with 50,000 plus users, virtually eliminating data disclosures. Tim is also highly regarded for leading IT turnarounds, increasing IT's reputation as a trusted and respected partner in the pursuit of strategic goals. Last but not the least, Dr. Chester is a noted author with over a dozen publications in the field. Welcome to the podcast, Tim. Well, Dave, let me say first, I'm just delighted to have the chance to be here with you today. And, and I've really enjoyed reading through your book. I've not finished it yet, but I think you've done a, a very masterful job of making a complex subject accessible to a wide, uh, wide audience of business professionals. And you should be commended for that. And, and I offer you my, my congratulations. And thank you so much for sharing a copy with me. Um, thank you. You know, I think we stress, well, we use a phrase in my organization quite a bit. In fact, it's a part of our strategic plan. And that phrase is fly the plane. Uh, and what this relates back to is an exercise that I learned a long time ago when I was a graduate student at Texas A&M University 30 years ago. I uh, was a little bored on the side and had a little cash to spend. And so I, I, I worked towards pilot's license and, and did a lot of uh, single engine plane flying over the farmlands and the plains of central, central Texas. And you learn very early in pilot training to always fly the plane. And what that means is that if you are not constantly anticipating and thinking through what's fixing to happen and what could happen, Frankly, the plan will fly you. You'll find up, you know, the, you'll have a, a burst of wind uh, that might come from a from a heat thermal that knocks you off course a little bit. You'll have to course correct to kind of get back there. And if you're not proactive, anticipating way the things will will go on, uh, the plane will fly you, and you'll react. And what you will find over time is that you will react in more and more stronger ways, which creates a negative reaction that again you have to react to. And frankly, that's how disasters happen in the uh, in, in flying flying a plane. So, 
we stress that in our organization quite a bit. And what, when we say fly the plane, what we simply mean is through strong teamwork uh, and strategic planning and, and foresight, we, we try to think constantly the types of scenarios that we could be facing. And we try to plan for the, 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 the little bitty factors that probably aren't a high probability of occurring, but it could be high impact if, if they do occur. So if you, if you, if you log into uh, the website uh, or you go to the website for UGA's IT organization, you see that flying a plane is, is a real stated uh, part of our strategic plan, whether we're, we're planning for the, the network, form, network load associated with class registration or thinking through the, the, the possibilities of a, a ransomware attack on the university. That's a inter very interesting metaphor. I love it. Flying the plane. It, uh, you know, it tells me about the importance of being very prepared, being proactive, mm -hmm. um, no knowing or rehearsing uh, how best to deal with uh, different scenarios. So you can't afford to be caught uh, blindsided. Um, and talking about can't afford to be caught blindsided, what are some cybersecurity blind spots and how do you cope with them? Right. Well, you and I both teach business process management at the university. It's, it's a strong set of competencies and skills that I think serve our graduates uh, really, really well. And part of that is what we think of as, or we call root cause analysis, right? And, and the thinking is that surface explanations and surface understandings tend to, to not be comprehensive enough and we as human beings tend to look for explanations that would suggest that we didn't necessarily have a lot of power to deal with something, uh, something really, really, really bad happens. The root cause analysis forces you to continue asking, why did this happen? Or why did that happen? Till you get to a level where you have uh, uncovered a set of conditions in which you actually had a deliberate amount of control and you could have, have done something about that. Uh, and uh, but our human desire to to basically uh, live through rote uh, repetition and structure that's comfortable and unchanging leads us to be creatures of of habit, and and again, creatures of habit who are following the habits and and following the rote behaviors that they always engage in typically find themselves in circumstances sometimes where again the plane starts flying them and the ways in which they react to to that plane. Uh, you know, become wilder and wilder swings that uh, could lead to, to to a disaster. I have really found, uh, and, and again, I work in higher education and state government as a separate vertical industry, but I think it's true across the other verticals, whether we're talking about finance or manufacturing uh, or, uh, or, uh, or, or, or commerce, uh, is that people are good. They care about their employers. They want to do a good job. But we as humans, again, are most comfortable when structures tend to be unchanging and there's nothing really unexpected going on. And we tend to assume the best and, and think that the worst will never really happen. And that tends to be, a, it tends to create the environment where really bad things can happen. Now, the most serious of information security incidents or breaches tend to be like plane crashes again, if I continue to use an aeronautic kind of uh, metaphor here or analogy, and that planes tend to crash not because one thing happened unexpectedly, but because multiple things happened 
at the same point in time, which create a set of circumstances that allowed something really, you know, low frequency but high impact to uh, to occur. So a lot of time in the information security space, the, the blind spots happen just because the IT industry and the IT culture within business places a premium on good customer service. And uh, sometimes good customer service and, and a function on functionality of, of our systems and what we do uh, comes at the expense of maintainability, compatibility, and, and information security. So, uh, you know, we, we have near misses all the time. We have a good team here that's proactive that can catch them. And, you know, we had, we had a near miss here recently uh, with some ransomware, and it really was all about a very good employee working in a very good unit, uh, you know, probably doing something that they shouldn't have done to enable some functionality from one of their key players. And, and they did that. And, uh, uh, and they did that some time ago. And the next thing you know, it's been a while since the machine was patched and so on and so forth. And just kind of a, a, a constant layering on of things that probably shouldn't have happened that created some some real risk and some some real vulnerability there, and uh, we were very fortunate that we were we became aware of those risks before something uh, before they were were really exploited. But but again, going back to earlier, you know we're most comfortable uh, again with a lot of structure and a lot of predictability, and that leads us to sometimes being very comfortable allowing the plane to fly us, and and the plane will fly us really really fast if we're not careful. Mm hmm. Very true. Uh, talking about being comfortable mm -hmm. and, you know, operating in a predictable space. Um, you know, when you think about the hackers and how they are constantly innovating and coming up with the latest uh, methods and techniques, it's hard to keep up with them. And again, that's not what organizations are in the business of, whether it's an right. academic organization or whether it's some other organization, they have their own mission, their goals. So, and of course, you know, there's always the budgetary constraints. So under the circumstances, how do folks like you try to ensure that your team has the latest experience and expertise in keeping up with these different uh, evolving attack vectors? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the uh, Department of Homeland Security and the, the computer or the cyber infrastructure security, CISA is the acronym. I can't always remember exactly what it stands for. Cyber information security is something. I, it, it's a branch of the Department of Homeland Security. Does an exceptionally good job of creating awareness of a really complex and, and fast changing environment so you know either through you know email or through automated feeds and other ways we get real-time intelligence from uh, the cisa uh, multiple times on a daily basis so uh, as an executive i just subscribe to their listservs and so today you know i've received uh, email messages about uh, the need to patch vulnerabilities in google chrome and you know there's a variety of other commercial packages out there so we have a, we divide our information security team up into kind of consulting and helping people around controls. And then we have an operations arm. And then a part of that operations arm is around proactively, you know, patching the environment and, and creating awareness of the need to do that. And uh, they help the institution and its IT staff stay on 
uh, on their toes when it comes to this type of changing environment. The other thing that they do really well also is they monitor known IP addresses that are out there that are either known to, to be distributing malware or ransomware uh, or to be command and control points for existing uh, uh, installed malware. And uh, you can, you know, I think on a daily basis or certainly on a weekly basis, we get a feed of those IP addresses and uh, auto, in an automated fashion, our network firewalls will block ingress and egress both to, to, the, to those IP addresses immediately, which, which helps us as well. So I, I think you know, that partnership, I think, has been really, really on, uh, on point for helping us stay aware. And then the other thing that we do is we stay highly engaged with with our counterparts in the uh, the southeastern conference schools as well as our other peer and aspirational schools and constantly kind of comparing notes and uh, uh, and having constant conversations as well as within the university system of Georgia. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, what about the rest of the community? Now, your community in the field of technology, obviously, that's part of your job description. You have to be on top of your game. But what kind of help and support can you expect from the other business units, as well as the individual stakeholders, whether it's faculty members, whether it's students, what could or should they be doing to help secure the environment? Well, for somebody in my role or for the CISO role, uh, and uh, one of the most critical things is that you have executive leadership that understands these responsibilities aren't siloed responsibilities for the IT folk, but they are business responsibilities that are shared by everyone. And I think in the state of Georgia, frankly, that recognition and that supporting philosophy starts at the top. Uh, Governor Brian Kemp has been a very strong supporter and advocate across the board for all state institutions to, to really raise the game uh, in terms of their cybersecurity defenses. And he has been quite explicit that it is the division heads and the CEOs of those major divisions, uh, including the chancellor of the University System of Georgia, who are ultimately responsible for assuring the state and the state government uh, that we are doing all we can uh, to reduce risk and to, to have the types of controls around technology and its use that, uh, that we need to have. Certainly within the University of Georgia, uh, in the 10 years that I have been here, we've enjoyed that type of support from the top, uh, from President Jerry Moorhead. He was, he was the number two at the university 10 years ago when I was hired here, and I worked for him directly for a couple of years, and, and now I continue to work for the provost, the number two here at the university. And so that tone really starts at the top, and I can tell you that, uh, you know, we have division heads here, we call them deans or vice presidents. They all understand that they are ultimately responsible to the institution for managing these risks, and that my office is a resource and a supporting arm, but it's, uh, it is a supporting arm. It's not solely responsible for managing these risks in and of itself. Uh, that tone gets set constantly, whether we're, we're doing things with security awareness training, which, again, under Governor Kemp's leadership, we now do twice a year. Uh, and uh, under the, uh, the leadership of acting Chancellor Teresa McCartney at the University System of Georgia level, there's been a sizable investment in uh, new infrastructure and supporting platforms for the cybersecurity training that Governor Kemp uh, requires us to do twice a year. And so 
I, I'm really fortunate. Again, I, I spent the last two days actually before recording this podcast at the at a meeting of uh, my counterparts in the Southeastern Conference. And uh, I think the mix of uh, support and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and real advocacy around information security that we enjoy at all levels of the, of the government have been very, very helpful to us. That's very, very um, assuring. That's good to hear that you have a great support from top management. So, you know, Tim, you were mentioning about my book. Uh, one of the things I've emphasized in the book, which I have gathered through my research is the importance of hands-on top management. Mm -hmm. And I've seen in many companies, the exemplars where the uh, senior management take on active roles, uh, whether it's in the aspects of cybersecurity planning, strategizing, um, performance review, they, they obviously are not experts. They don't claim to be experts, but they try to stay on top of things. Yes. It seems from, from what you shared, that's, what's, that's the way it's, uh, your organization functions. That's the kind of support you have. Uh, you know, anything that you'd like to add for people who are listening in and who feel a little frustrated or let down that they don't see that, that level of active commitment? It's a sensitive topic, but I still thought of uh, probing a little further because, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I think part of this may be is that when, when our president, Jerry Moorhead, was the provost of the university and in fact responsible for most of the operations here at the university, we were getting burned constantly by, by cybersecurity incidents. And I, I think that created an awareness in him of, of the need to, to make sure that uh, this was something that all executives understood was part of their responsibility to manage well. And uh, uh, I'm not gonna you know, curse us by mentioning how long it's been since we've had a major incident. Uh, you know, we, we have near misses all, all the time, just like everybody else. Uh, but again, I think that constant diligence coming from the business side where we do have an understanding that these are business responsibilities first and foremost has, has been absolutely critical. I do think it's also really, really important in, in terms of ultimately who, whoever within an organization has the final responsibility and accountability for these types of uh, risk management uh, activities has to basically set at the executive team with the CEO and, and whatever form exists when the, when the organization. So, so I report to the, the number two here at the university who's responsible for academic operations, which is again, 70% of the university, uh, you know, but the president has staff meeting every two weeks and I'm a part of that uh, staff meeting and I have the opportunity to, to raise uh, awareness of issues, bring visibility to things that should be, be, be visible to, to everyone to be an advocate for, for sound practices. And, uh, and then, you know, I'm on a texting and cell phone relationship with the president. Whenever I need to get his attention to some matter, uh, uh, the president is pretty easy to reach. In fact, you know, last night coming back from my meeting with my counterparts in the SEC, you know, I debriefed the president on a, you know, later phone call in the evening to just kind of compare notes with things that are going on. So I, I do think you know, CEOs really understand that these are things that they have to manage. And frankly, if they don't manage well, they are things that wreck careers. And so frankly, that helps, right? So you go back 10 years ago, a major 
secure cybersecurity problem inside of a business, probably, you know, the CIO or the CISO or both of them, you know, they are the, the two parts of the operation that really had some career risk there. Uh, you know, I, I believe that, that that awareness that extends all throughout the organization and certainly at the executive level. To go back to the, the governor of the state, the CEO of our great state of Georgia, you know, he he had a couple of in- incidents on his watch when he was the secretary of state. And, and I think he handled the response to those incredibly well. Uh, he, he left the place better than he inherited it. And he has brought that awareness to all arms, to all levels of the state government, which has been truly, truly helpful. Yep, that is extremely important. Um, you kind of speaking to a couple of things that I emphasize a lot. One is, uh, you know, joint ownership and accountability. And, and the other is trying to create that we are in it together culture where everybody yeah. has to recognize that it's not IT's job or the information security uh, unit's job to protect us. We also have a role to play. Uh, it's like the way we are fighting COVID. You know, we can't just mm-hmm. sit back and expect miracles to happen. We have to recognize our roles and do our part. Uh, from the standpoint of enhancing level of awareness, you mentioned about uh, you know, conducting awareness tra- training uh, twice a year, and that's great. Um, now, there is a lot of research out there that speaks to the importance of customized training, that speaks to the importance of um, you know, a role-based training, a training that shouldn't be one-shot because mm-hmm. people often don't remember the first time what they were trained in. And, and then another aspect that often doesn't get addressed is, you know, are you effectively measuring the effectiveness of the training? Mm-hmm. And I know I asked you several sub questions, but, you know, take it the way you're comfortable. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think there's a couple of things. I think we're raising the bar, right? And I mentioned earlier this investment in, in kind of the training awareness platform that the University System of Georgia has made. That platform has a lot of capabilities around, you know, uh, uh, simulate malware campaigns and, and some other kind of tools to, to really take uh, an exercise approach to, you know, to helping to kind of raise the awareness bar for your organization. I think the information security training that we have done in the past has been quite rote and, and, and frankly not as polished as uh, it could be. And this investment of resources by the system, I think, is really going to raise the bar uh, quite a, a, a bit there for us. Uh, and, uh, you know, between that and, and I think the commitment from the executive level organization, I think it's uh, – it's been, it's, it's really, we have, a, we have a, a quite optimal environment here at the University of Georgia right now to, to kind of continue moving the, the needle here. Okay, okay. Now, um, from a communication standpoint, um, you know, as a member of the university community, I will often receive cybersecurity related co- uh, communications. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're often a long email. Right. And, and I, can, I can understand that, you know, certain things need to be mentioned. Now, it's quite possible that when somebody receives a long email, they might be skimming through it or might be reading parts of it or might just ignore it. Mm-hmm. So how, and you will, you will appreciate that part of effective communication is to ensure that the message really gets across to the appropriate folks. Right. So keeping that in mind, how do you make cybersecurity communication 
more customized and more effective. Have you all been giving this some thought? Yeah, I think, well, I think we certainly understand that we need to do a lot better job at this. Uh, you know, typically, you know, we, we have a very structured communication, you know, management program that goes around our initiatives and our operations that's designed to raise awareness. But I think you hit the nail on the head is that sometimes those communications are, are written from the standpoint of IT folk, which, you know, sometimes uses vocabulary and acronyms that, that, that really aren't well understood and, and readers tend to disengage pretty quickly from that. Frankly, the whole question of whether or not email is the best vehicle for communicating these things is also continues to, uh, to be a, a concern. People don't read email as much as they used to. And the longer the email, the less uh, you're likely to get the message across. So, you know, I think trying to raise messaging that's targeted to more smaller audiences is something that we're trying to do. And there's some upgrades to our multi-factor system that we're trying to be very specific and targeted as opposed to global in communications. Um, the other thing we have to do is just make, we, when we communicate to people, we have to, to, to do so in a context that you know, is accessible and really makes relevant, uh, you know, through narrative, you know, what's at stake for me and what do I have in, in this? And again, I, I, it has to be very personalized as well. And, and again, I, I think we've got real opportunities to, to get uh, much, much better uh, about that. When I came here 10 years ago, the knock used to be, well, you never told us anything that we were, were doing this. You know, now we beat people over the head with communications, but I still wonder sometimes whether the message is truly getting through. And the use of social media is, is becoming an important part of that as well, although I, I'm, I, I'm not, you know, sending a, a, a mass listserv to 50,000 people versus posting something on Twitter, you know, to a much smaller audience repetitively. I, I'm not sure the, the social media is, is it gets as broad a reach, but you know, we're, we're trying to take multiple avenues and use multiple, you know, takes at the messaging to, to more specific audiences to get the word, to get the word across. That's, that's great to hear. You know, for instance, from a faculty member's perspective, you know, it would be good to know that given the role I play at the university, what are some do's and don'ts from mm -hmm. a cybersecurity standpoint? Now, is this information not available? No, it's available. It's out there. But to, you know, get it in my inbox in a very targeted manner, and then from time to time being reminded that these are the things that you should focus on, that helps simplify things a little bit as compared to a broad brush approach where you're being told what are the sensitive assets and what are some scenarios that you should be careful about. That's a little too generic. So that's just uh, my two cents, but um, I appreciate the candor and the recognition that uh, we can do better. Yeah, so the other, I'll just add to that really, really quickly. I mean, so again, we were at Auburn University for this meeting mm -hmm. of, of my counterparts mm -hmm. in the last couple of days. Auburn has done a really good job with messaging around posters on entryways, uh, you know, for their computer labs, screensavers and things like that. And that's probably a, another opportunity where we need to, to get the word out a lot, a lot more. That's a good, that's a great approach. That's a great approach indeed. All right. So the next uh, topic that is also very close to my heart is security audits and drills. 
Mm-hmm. You know, something that I, I talk about a lot um, when I'm out there, I say, you know, we have five drills. Do we have information security drills? Mm-hmm. Do we plan for uh, distributed denial of service attacks and, and ransomware attacks? And, and now I know it's easier said than done and organizations do tabletop exercises, but in your role as the, the person, the technology person of the university, are you happy with the rehearsals that we have in place or can we do better? Yeah, you know, I think we've, um, I think we're doing well here. We certainly always can do better, but, you know, we really have implemented, you know, kind of the gold standard uh, approach to a, to, a, to a security operations center. And a part of that center is, uh, you know, a red team versus a blue team. And, and the red team are the friendly hackers who, uh, you know, are empowered to, uh, to probe uh, our, ourselves and our systems and look for vulnerabilities. And so, again, being here, you know, at an institution, we're able to employ graduate students, we're able to employ undergraduate students, uh, as well as some professional employees. And so we are constantly trying to hack the hell out of ourselves, uh, using many of the common methods that are, that are out there. And, you know, moving the needle in terms of uh, not only just penetration, but also thinking about malware and, and ransomware. There, there are some tools out there that are now available we're looking at acquiring, which will, you know, with, with some intelligence agents scattered around your enterprise, will tell you really quickly how easy it is to drop malware and, and other things. So we are constantly hoping to discover the major risks and vulnerabilities we have uh, before others do. And again, we're not perfect at it. We're so big, we often miss things. Uh, but uh, there's a huge investment in resources to do that. And it is always, you know, I have to be careful about some of the stories I would, would share. But uh, again, you will appreciate this given your expertise and, and your rich experience in consulting. Many times when vendors and uh, implementers, you know, install major infrastructure on campus and they walk away from it and they flip the switch on, they don't change the default password to things. Uh, and so we've, we've discovered major things here at the, at the university from, from HVAC equipment to uh, uh, school board and athletic venues that uh, if you, you knew what kind of make and model the, the thing was and you knew uh, how to use Google to find the, the, uh, the manual of instructions and how to go find that and get the default username and password, if you were on campus, you could actually control that stuff. And, you know, there, there have been several uh, vulnerabilities like that that have been discovered. And, you know, really that goes right back to the question of blind spots, right? So you got an mm-hmm. implementer. My job is to implement and turn it on. They'll figure that other stuff out. And then you got customers who bought for, well, we paid these experts to do it. So they had to do it right. We're in good shape. There's a blind spot between two well-intentioned, good groups of people working their best to do a hard job. Uh, and so, again, constantly uh, attacking ourselves, again, using the well-understood red team approach is something we are, are very aggressive with. Yep, that's, that's very true. And uh, talking about vulnerabilities and talking about discovering vulnerabilities, another uh, you know, area of great concern to me is we keep reading about these stories in the media that this organization was made aware but did nothing about it until it happened. Right. And so I wonder uh, from an operation standpoint, I'm sure you'll have a mechanism in place 
where you are logging all the intelligence you are receiving and then you are evaluating them and then either acting or not acting, but at least you're on record explaining your reason for your decisions. So this way you're maintaining a rigorous record of how you're handling intelligence, which later on, I'm not a legal expert, but I think, you know, if you had to defend the organization, you could say that we've done everything and yeah. this is how we thought during that period of time. So you kind of back up your actions. Your reactions to that? Yeah, and let me just give you a little context first. Mm -hmm. You know, research flagships like the University of Georgia, uh, uh, you know, our, our, you know, vertical industries like finance or manufacturing, we are research and innovation conglomerates. And we have 18 uh, uh, major units here at the institution, colleges and schools that are invested in innovation in their field. So we allow for a wide variety of, uh, of different and non-standard approaches to running technology because it supports research and engineering or business, research in the areas that you do, Dave, uh, public health, so on and so forth. So that kind of very distributed, non-standardized environments increases risk dramatically. But we have a couple of basic gatekeeping rules around that. To begin with, everybody's got to run our antivirus and everybody's got to send their logs to our secure, security operations center. And the tools just for data mining and analysis around those logs just continues to get better and better and better, better. Uh, so, so again, one of the one of the, the benefits for making everybody use the same standard antivirus engine, we don't let allow people to buy other antivirus products, is that we get just incredibly centralized logging uh, about packets that are downloaded from the internet and. Many times, uh, you know, we will we will see something through our intelligence the end user is not aware of, and we can take action from that. Uh, there's a there's another very good uh, uh, product that is being commercialized by a computer science faculty at Georgia Tech. He was formerly at the University of Georgia. That that very helpful in in this space. Uh, and then again, kind of on the reactive side as well, this ransomware near miss that that we had. Uh, these new data mining tools are very good at looking for lateral moves through the network environment by people who who breached the environments if they did it, if they moved anywhere, and uh, you know again it's it's kind of a big data collection effort right you've got hundreds if not thousands of endpoints all logging things and if you can capture all that data with the right tools you can get a, a fuller sense of uh, what's going on. But again, it is absolutely amazing. You know, used to, we would have to write our own scripts to kind of look for things. And then the tools come with standard templates. Uh, now the tools come with AI and machine learning uh, that merges all of those things together to really give us a proactive sense. Now these tools are expensive. They are absolutely expensive. But, uh, you know, they're well, well worth it. And it's, it's a fast maturing field. And again, we're, we're very fortunate to operate in an environment with a senior administration that, that, that supports us with the resources necessary to be, in, in this space, we are early adopters. Very, very, very good to hear that. Um, you know, you talked about all kinds of data and analytics that's available to us now. That brings to mind performance measures and metrics. And this is another one of those areas where it's very hard to learn, or it seems that organizations are struggling in terms of identifying 
what measures or metrics to um, capture and monitor when it comes to cybersecurity performance. What's your take on that? You know, and this is, this is an area that I am not necessarily a subject matter expert as, as well as I should be. I, I have a really strong information security team and, and I trust their judgment. And, and in some areas, I'm really just the gatekeeper, not the gatekeeper, but I am the guardrails around, around their work. So thinking about these KPIs, frankly, the most important KPI that, that I'm aware of is have we had a major breach? Uh, that uh, resulted in the either increased vulnerabilities or in, uh, increased rep reputational damage or real damage to the institution and its customers. And that is one certainly that I, that I keep in my pocket uh, as well. But, but everything else from number of end users, types of end users, uh, types of access uh, that, that's managed by those users, uh, you know, metrics around how we promptly decommission accounts when people, some people exit the community uh, is absolutely critical, uh, as well as, you know, stats on, and, and, you know, volume of patching, you know, what's our time to patch for, you know, a certain grade of patch with medium risk versus low risk versus critical risk. And uh, those, those are all, I think, really, really important as well. The most important one, which is, is the one that the, the, the CEO cares about most that I do is number of incidents and how many have we, we had. And, uh, uh, and uh, first and foremost, that's one thing I keep in mind all the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, along those lines, if, uh, you know, if you were to think about rewards and incentive systems, Mm -hmm. uh, it's a reward in itself uh, if cyber attacks didn't happen. That that is that goes without saying. But do you have any thoughts about uh, because in reality, it helps to motivate a certain desired behavior. Um, any thoughts on what would be some good rewards and incentive systems to achieve the desired behavior across the organization? when it's not your job function? You know, unfortunately, I, I think this is an opportunity for the whole profession more than anything else. Uh, because, you know, right now, we probably have more sticks than we have carrots, unfortunately. I mean, one of the ways we keep our, you know, our deans and our vice president's attention on these matters is simply because they know if there's an incident on their watch, you know, they're going to be in the general counsel's office with me and some of my folks, the president's chief of staff, as we begin root causing uh, how how whatever happened actually happened, and that, that's an uncomfortable seat to be in for the three or four deans that have, that I've been in the room with when we've had to do that, and you know, you know, accountability works. Uh, it's 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 really really uh, really really important. But I think the other thing that we do, and it's, it's more um, not necessarily secondary, but indirect kind of, you know, carrot or, or incentive is just really empowering users, right? You know, so, it, you know, particularly with the researcher in a lab and, and you know, or whether we're talking about the vet school or in chemistry or something like that, by just basically helping them understand how this works, good security practices work, and, and how they really can enable them to do some innovative things without artificial controls and barriers from on top here at the institution. I think that really creates an incentive for, for people to, you know, have really good baselines around information security in their, in their operations. So we certainly try to, to take that as, as well. 
again, sharing data from these meetings I've just come out of, you know, we we do we trust our users a lot more here at the institution. And we do some things for compensating controls, which I can get into at the network level, that give us the ability to have more flexibility at the endpoint level, which we're very, very comfortable with. But but again, I went to graduate school at, at Texas AM. I started my career in IT at that organization with some great mentors. Uh, people that your listeners won't know, but but gentlemen, Tom Putnam, Steve Williams, Pierce Cantrell, they're really giants in my eyes of, of, of our discipline. And the thing that they all kind of really baked into my noggin is that research institutions are research and innovation conglomerates, and you have to allow faculty have the room to innovate. Otherwise, you know, you're defeating the whole you know mission of, of research and innovation at, at the institution. So we do a lot more aggressive things, a lot a lot more things with tools uh, that are quite expensive at the network level. That means we don't micromanage the endpoints in our environment where a lot of schools are, are actively trying to manage risk by managing endpoints. And uh, uh, again, making sure that we provide faculty members and staff members the flexibility to use tools as they best see fit to carry out their job or their, or their, their research, I think is one of the most important incentives that we can have. Yep, that is very true. And, and in that spirit of empowering the users to be able to continue their mission as to why they're at the institution, like we said at the very beginning, we are not here in the business of security. We're in the business of doing what we do, yeah. but we cannot ignore security. Security is centric to ensuring that we can do all our jobs well. Um, I'd like to probe into another area that yeah. that's, that's about empowering the empowering the chief information security officer. Um, it is my belief that you are the head of technology of IT mm -hmm. at the institution, the CISO reports to you, is that correct? He does, yes. Okay, so how do you ensure that, uh, because you know, again, uh, the research literature talks about trying to keep the CISO as, the CISO function as objective as possible. The CISO should have a direct reporting relationship to the C-level folks. Again, this is a murky area. Um, yeah. You know, you can do it in different ways. What's what's your sense about CISO empowerment? Yeah, I, you know, I think I think what we have here at the University of Georgia works because of the leadership, you know, tone that the president sets, uh, and uh, the way he's organized his team in a very collaborative way, uh, and. Uh, it's not necessarily replicable at institutions without the kind of culture or without that kind of leadership tone that, that gets set. So what President Moorhead is looking for in all of his vice presidents is an ultimate and final authority over their areas, right? Subject to, to his review or, or his, uh, uh, his perspective on, on any matter. So from a university governance standpoint, I am that final, final, final subject matter expert when it comes to IT matters. Uh, and President Moorhead, that does include information security matters as, as, as well. Uh, and so that means I have signature authority over policy. Uh, but, you know, that's, uh, you know, it's a servant leadership role. It's not a, it, particularly in a collaborative environment like universities, it's not necessarily a hierarchical role at all. But within my team, you know, we're very non-hierarchical as well. I know, you know, the University of Texas system, for example, has a system-wide rule that says um, 
that the uh, uh, the CISO cannot report to IT because what the concern always is is that information security kind of gets buried under uh, the weight of fulfilling customer service requests and and demands for functionality, and that's why you would split those roles off. Um, so the University of Texas system uh, has done that uh, for all of its counterparts, uh, and uh, yeah. Philosophically, I don't think it's the best mix because I think when you do that, yes, you gain some some increased visibility with that organizational structure, but you tend to divorce security a bit from from operations. Now, now they have done this at the University System of Georgia as well, but just for their office alone. Uh, and and so the CISO at that point. When you do it that way, they almost always are always focused on controls and standards at the expense of operations. Uh, and I, I worry, and this is President Moorhead's genius, what he doesn't want from the vice presidents or the deans is a lot of finger pointing. So if there's an information security thing that goes on, he doesn't want two subject matter authorities pointing the finger at each other and security saying these darn IT folks, if they get their act together, we would be okay. And uh, the IT folks saying, oh, I'll security people over there. This is their deal. They're silo, not ours. And so, you know, again, it's not just me and IT. The, the, the VP for student affairs is the final authority over student affairs. The VP for instruction over instruction and teaching and, and, and so on. So I, we run, but again, what works for us doesn't work elsewhere, particularly would not work in a very high organization. So I know some CIOs uh, who basically have a team of direct reports and, uh, you know, they'll bring that team of direct reports together once every two or three months to have a staff meeting and they'll meet with everybody individually. My team meets with me once a week. Everybody's in the room and everybody knows they have a responsibility to understand how they can be supportive of everyone else and, and really understand the independencies they have on everybody else, including information security. Uh, they also meet without me once a week on their own as well. I think they do that to try to figure out how to collectively manage me better or, or something like that. But it's a very non-hierarchical, very collaborative, uh, everyone around the table has an equal seat and equal voice kind of matter. And that mirrors the way the president runs the university. If CIO was CISO was buried under me in a very hierarchical way, uh, that may be that may be really really grounds for, for concerns, but but again because of my style and approach, uh, Ben Myers, our CISO, he has his own relationship with the general counsel. Uh, he has his own relationship with deans. Uh, I don't gatekeep him in terms of collaborating and relationships around here. Uh, I guess the only only area that I would gatekeep him around access is access to the president's staff meeting, but that's the way the president runs the meeting. You know, if we're going to bring a if we're going to bring somebody to the meeting, it comes through us. So, but uh, for what so what we have works through us. This is this is a field that's that's fast changing, um, and so I, I, I know what the University of Texas has going on is, is working for them. And, uh, and then frankly, I'll also say the University System of Georgia really began moving Benita from a policy and control standpoint when they separated out information security from, from IT operations. And, and so I think what they've done there is working for them also. Wonderful, Tim. Uh, thank you so much for your time. This has been extremely enlightening. We've covered a lot of areas. Any final talk? Yeah, yeah, the, you covered a lot of ground. Um, any final thoughts? 
I, you know, I think this is one of the most interesting and dynamic fields that there is in IT. And I tell my students that, you know, if you want a super career for the next 20 years guaranteed, this is a space to really explore. You don't have to be incredibly technical. You have to be technical enough to know what's going on at, at least the 25,000 foot view and up. Uh, but it is, it, it's a real opportunity. And, and again, I was in a staff meeting with the, the CISO and my team together today and just hearing a report on some of the new investments they would like to make in tools and how AI is fast evolving uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a threat uh, monitor. It's, it's just absolutely incredible. And uh, so also from a student standpoint, I'm, I'm a huge advocate for them thinking about this space and uh, investing in it. And, uh, you know, again, I've been fortunate to work for great people and uh, for great organizations. And you know, uh, having been here at the University of Georgia now for, for 10 years, red and black runs in my blood. And uh, I, uh, I consider myself very fortunate to be able to do the job that I've, I've done. But I do it knowing that I'm a caretaker for a while and not gonna, going to, uh, I'm going to leave it to somebody at some point. And the thing that I've tried to do is to leave an organization and a team and a, and, a, and, and, a, and a pool of talent that gets the job done. And I think we're making that work today really well. Fantastic. And, and, and Tim, thank you for what you do for the institution. It's been a pleasure to work with you as a colleague. And thank you again for um, doing this podcast with me today. It's All been a pleasure. Thank you. A special thanks to Dr. Timothy Chester for his time and insights. If you like what you heard, please leave the podcast a rating and share it with your network. Also subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. Thank you for listening and I'll see you in the next episode. The information contained in this podcast is for general guidance only. The discussants assume no responsibility or liability for any errors or omissions in the content of this podcast. The information contained in this podcast is provided on an as-is basis with no guarantee of completeness, accuracy, usefulness, or timeliness. The opinions and recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the discussants and not of any organization.